Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. So this week on Product Love, I talked to Wyatt Jenkins, the VP of product at Patreon. So Patreon is this cool new membership platform that provides business tools for creators to run a subscription content service. It's a way for artists to build relationships and provide experiences to their subscribers and make a living. So Wyatt and I talked a lot about pricing strategy. You know, Wyatt says that pricing is one of the most important skills a product manager can have. And I totally agree. The craft of product management is about creating value and capturing that value. And in order to capture that value, you have to generate revenue, right? And in order to optimize that revenue, you need a solid approach to determining pricing. So Wyatt and I sat down and discussed pricing strategies in detail. And we talked about how we can figure out the best price for our products through a variety of different techniques. All of this got me to thinking, should product managers own pricing? I think they should. How should PMs make a case to own pricing if they don't? Well, that's a good question. I'd love to know, do you all own pricing strategy or do you believe that responsibility goes somewhere else? Tell me your thoughts. You can reach me at ebodak at pendo.io or tweet at me at ebodak. Hey, welcome Wilvers of Product. I am here today with Wyatt Jenkins who runs Product at Patreon, a really cool company you should all check out. Wyatt, why don't we kick this off with you giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. Yeah, I mean, my uh, when I meet folks, my I, I always say I can divide my life, my adult life, into three bullets. Bullet one is I was an artist and a DJ. Bullet two was I helped start a company, Beatport. And bullet three, I figured out how to scale myself at Shutterstock. And then I've done some other things around, but that's probably like... 25 years of adult life. So in the first bullet, I was a DJ and a musician, and I had a record store and a record label, and I was an artist, a creator. Yeah, I made music, and I flew around the world and DJed, and it was an interesting life. So I learned a lot about how to hustle and how to build small businesses and that kind of thing, which makes me relevant to this job in particular here at Patreon, and I think was a particularly relevant attribute for Shutterstock as well. Yeah, talk to me a little bit more about that because you've been a product leader at some really cool organizations, right? Optimizely, Shutterstock, Hired too, right? Yeah. yeah. So what did you learn from each? What was it like at each? How were they different and what did you learn? Boy. Well, so my first company, I just learned how to build a company from nothing to something, which was sort of that whole – we didn't have a name for it in 2002, but I think it was like an MVP approach was because we just didn't have any money. So you would build the lightest possible thing to get, you know, just enough to build the company. So at Beatport, it was sort of learning how to do zero to one. And then at Shutterstock, I learned how to do one to many. At Shutterstock, I learned uh, as a product leader, I joined, there were two teams. And when I left, there were 35 teams or so. And so I got to learn how to scale myself scale product development, scale product discovery, you know, get many, many teams doing what we were doing with just a few teams at other companies. Boy, yeah, they're all different. I guess if you looked at my career, I have a lot of marketplace experience. So I have a lot of uh, understanding of how to 
test and optimize growth on different sides of a marketplace. That was Beatport, that was Shutterstock, and a little bit of Hired. And then I have some SaaS experience. Optimizely is a, is a pure SaaS product. And Patreon's a pseudo, it's like a small b SaaS product. Creators, it's essentially a membership platform for creators to build a membership. And it's a considered purchase. You know, if you're an artist, you're like, am I going to launch a Patreon page? That's a very considered thing. So it does, we do have like a strategic sales team or creator partnerships as we call them. So it's like a mix. It's a blend of a marketplace and a SaaS product, but more of a SaaS product. So talk to me about that as a strategic considered purchase. Explain the, the cycle for Patreon. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, if you're a podcaster, you know, there's, you, you just ask yourself, like, do I like, well, first of all, do you have a podcast big enough to make any money or do you have enough, a lot of fans? And so, and what, how big does that have to be? You know, for some people, it's a thousand. Okay. Uh, some people, it's 10. Depends on the type of fans you have and the type of content you have. Because Patreon, you really only need a thousand true fans to make a great living. Most social networks and platforms in the world are designed for maximum reach. Patreon's almost the opposite, where Patreon's designed for your your thousand true fans. So we have podcasters with just a few thousand listeners, and then they tell the listeners, hey, I'm not going to do ads on this podcast. Rather, I'd just like to do the podcast for all of you, and I'd like you to go to my Patreon page and give me a couple bucks a month, and I will continue to do this podcast for everybody. And they get 500 or 1,000 people to sign up for five bucks a month. Next thing you know, they've got a nice recurring income so they can do their art. So your original question was, how is it considered? I think as a creator, you have to consider a lot. You have to say, do I believe I have a thousand true fans? Do I want to run a membership? Because memberships, you know, there's a lot to it. There's, there could be physical merch. There could be one-on-one uh, uh, Skype calls with certain people. Like there, there's all kinds of benefits you need to deliver to your fans via membership. And so you have to decide what type of membership do I want to run and is it something I want to put very little effort into or something I'm going to really put my back into. So there are people who go to Patreon and they just literally, it's like a recurring tip jar. They're like, I'm going to do my art and I want you to give me two bucks a month. That's it. That's the extent of the relationship. And then there are other creators who come to Patreon who are going to start a community and be active in a forum and be always talking. There's illustrators and book authors who want to engage their members and ask them, like, you you see creative input. They're like, hey, what should I do with this character in the next book? And all their fans, like, chime in and say, oh, I think you should take it this direction or that direction. And then there's creators, like a lot of YouTubers, who have entire merch lines. Like, after you've been a patron for six months, you get the cool purple hoodie. So it's really, like, there's a, there's a scope of what it means, what's a membership to you, from purely altruistic recurring tip jar all the way to like a robust membership like you would expect if you were a member of the Met in New York. I'm a member of the Met in New York and you know I got I get discount tickets, I get invited to this cool Met dinner, I get you know stuff sent I get these pamphlets sent to me. I think my name's on a plaque somewhere, you know, all that stuff. So you're a big member. Well, I'm a I don't think no there's much bigger members. <laughs> And honestly, for, for the Met, at least, I'm on the altruistic side. I actually don't – they could send me nothing. I don't – I actually just want the Met to exist. Yeah. And to, like, be in the world because it's good for the world for the Met to exist and to keep showing the stuff that it shows. So I don't actually need anything. But I know a lot of people that do want a lot. They want to know when the next exhibit is and get, like, a preview special and get discounts and get free T-shirts sent to them. So just, you know, people have signed up to memberships for different reasons. 
Hmm. Interesting. So uh, DJing, and <laughs> it kind of comes full circle in some ways with Patreon, right? It you does. know, DJing, a PM, a, a business that's geared towards artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I've always believed in the power of, of art, of music, of writing. Of art. So is that why you, you were drawn to Patreon, given oh, yeah. that it's geared towards creators and you're one? Absolutely. That's why I'm here. It's such a mix of like stuff I'm already good at. I've been a head of product at a lot of different types of companies and something I care about, which is supporting the arts. Uh, and what it means to create is so different and ambiguous. And so I love that Patreon it takes an approach of like whatever medium you have is fine. It's a, it's, yeah, it's a great mix of my background and skill set. When I started Beatport with my friends, we were just a bunch of DJs who launched a website that had record labels on one side and DJs on the other, and there was was a marketplace. And that was supporting DJs, artists. Then when I went to Shutterstock, it was photographers. You know, we had photographers on one side, designers on the other. And again, I was supporting creatives. Uh, But I started to understand how to run marketplaces pretty well. Yeah, the real, the real detour would be Optimizely. <laughs> that's, the, that's the one that doesn't fit. The thing is that Shutterstock, was a, Shutterstock became popular at a time when paid acquisition was still like a new science, kind of in those mid-2000s when not everybody understood how Google worked and how, how to like outbid each other algorithmically on keywords. And so what I got good at at Shutterstock was A-B testing and conversion. And then that's what kind of drew you to Optimizely? That's what sent me to Optimizely, yeah, when I met Dan. At the time, the CEO of Optimizely, it was, it was like, yeah, I've, I've been running thousands of tests a year for years at Shutterstock. So I've a really, we built our own internal A-B testing framework. And so I had a pretty nuanced opinion of how to build an A-B testing product and, and why to build an A-B testing product. So let's, let's talk some more about testing. Let's talk about what types of tests are out there. What... Yeah, I mean, um, I think at the end of the day, testing for me is about trying to seek learning to understand why people make decisions. It helps me understand our customers better and understand why they might choose one thing versus another. That's one type of testing is I have a hypothesis and I want to seek the truth about it. Testing is also about de-risking. You know, it's about like, I believe that this thing will make a positive change, but I actually want to see if it does or it doesn't before we roll it out. So when you say types of testing, there's A-B tests that are designed to see if you've got the right price point. There's phased rollouts where you want to put a new feature on a segment of traffic to see if it does anything adverse, which we call smoke tests, see if anything lights on fire. Uh, Multivariate tests so that you can isolate variables. Sometimes you have a page that's trying to explain a lot to people. And on one test, you could just change the fonts. and one test, you could change the messaging. Another test, you could change the colors. Then what you're doing is you're isolating the variables in a multivariate that will tell you what the levers are of that page. What is it about this page that actually is going to make compel the user to do something or not? So those are, those are a few types of testing that I spent a lot of time doing. I personally am really – I love price testing. That's something we did a lot of at Shutterstock. Shutterstock is a company that deals in a commoditized asset, which are images. Images are everywhere. <laughs> and you can get sunset images lots of places. So why would a person – choose to go to Shutterstock to buy these images. It's all about discovery and price and the right image for the right story that the person's trying to tell. And we were just constantly optimizing and testing every single little bit of the frame, uh, the experience to make sure folks were getting to the right image at the so right time. So take me through some more details there because one of the things I've always found that PMs struggle with is pricing. Mm. You know, it, it seems like very much uh, an art, right? So talk to me about 
you know, specific tests you've went through maybe and, you know, how that affected your price? Boy, I would like to write a book on this topic. Uh, I think it would be a great book because I really do think product managers struggle with pricing. And that's a shame because, honestly, pricing is maybe the most important skill a product manager can have. Because if you really think about the art of product management, you create value and you capture value. Price is simply the delta between the two. It's the delta between the amount of value you created and the amount you captured. And psychologically, people believe something is a premium product or not based on what you charge for it. So the price you put on a thing actually changes the perception of the product experience that you're building. And I think I want to be careful here, but I would say a lot of Silicon Valley companies have had this model of I'm just going to build something that people like and I'll figure out how to charge for it later. And I think that's, that's the opposite of the way I've always done product. I believe you should create value and you should capture value and you should understand how you're going to do both very early on. But of course, I also, before I came out west, I had never worked at a VC-backed company. Both Shutterstock and Beatport were bootstrapped. Shutterstock bootstrapped all the way to IPO, which is not something you hear about very often. No, no, definitely not today. But that's, I always say that there's, a, there's like New York product management and there's California product management. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, can, I can understand that completely. And if, and if you're an investor and you're looking at like New York tech companies and California tech companies, your portfolio of your California tech companies would look like all your gains are in like two companies out of 100 investments because every company had gone big or like died. And if you'd had the same investment in a bunch of New York companies, you'd have like... 40 or 50% of them are somewhat profitable, but maybe not those one or two like uber profitable companies. So yes, it's just like, yes. a, literally it's like a different investment portfolio as you look at the two coasts. <laughs> yeah, no, I've definitely seen, I don't know that that's as true today, but it, it definitely was true in the past. It's true, I'm dating myself a little bit. It's probably like dating back to like early Silicon Alley thinking back in like 2011. And and, and, and some reason why like companies like Facebook, I think left the Boston ecosystem and ended up out here. Really? Yeah, I mean that, that's complete conjecture on my part, but uh, it's an argument I could probably back up, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pricing. I feel like product managers, when they're building something, should understand the value that their users cre- put on the thing that they're building. And the best way – there's only two ways that people va- – humans value things. There's more, but there's two basic ways, which are time and money. Are they willing to spend their time on it and are willing to spend their money on it? So you know you've created something valuable when someone's willing to spend their money on it. I would have PMs that work for me do the wallet test a lot of times in MVP testing where it's like, hey, do you like this thing? Yeah, I like this thing. Would you put your name on this thing? I'd put my name on it. Would you pay for it? Yeah, I'd pay for it. Would you pay for it right now? Where's your? Can you, would you pull out your credit card and give it to me? Like if you can get all yeses to all those answers, then you have created something valuable. And a lot of PMs I meet, they really they stop short at the like, does someone like a thing or, you know what I mean? Like that. I think that's a light touch. It's when you get them to pull out their wallet and pay for it. That's when you're yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah. And then the question comes, well, what do you ask for? You yeah. ask for is it ninety nine dollars? Is it four hundred and ninety nine dollars? Did you pay a thousand for this? How how did you test that? Or how um, do you tell PMs to test that? Well, I think painted door tests are really nice for price levels. You can literally get like conversion data on. How many people click through at $10, at $100? I think painted door pricing is a really good way to do it. I, I like A-B testing a lot for, you know, you have different pricing pages. The pages are identical, but the price 
numbers are different so you can figure out. Also, and, and take people through the details of that because I don't think a lot of people know. So in, in a painted door case, it's really just a painted door, right? Do you want to explain that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. We just did this three weeks ago. Okay. Uh, Patreon's launching a merch product. It's not a secret. We Memberships have merch, many of them. We are going to charge differently for merch than we are for, our, for the rest of our services. And so we had a painted door test, we, a product page for our merch, which we are building, by the way, but we built the, the product page as though it were finished. And it said, hey, sign up for Patreon merch. These are the features. You can design your merch and you can send it and we ship it and you know, all this stuff and we support any challenges with it. And it's 5% of your membership revenue. And then we played around with that price and we did tests. And then we would, we would send it to a bunch of creators and we'd see how many creators would click through and then add their email address at the end that they, yes, they would sign up for it. At all the different price points. At the different price points. Yeah. And then you can actually get a drop off of, you know, at what price does the conversion go down significantly? And then the eventual follow-up is going to be, hey, this is the price, right? Yeah. And then so as you build it, you know, you get into your kind of reference customer process for product management where you actually get a customer to actually pay for it. And so we'll follow up as, as we get into the – we're in the alpha phase. We're kind of moving into the beta phase of our merch product, and we'll get a set of reference So you have, you have a set of customers that were willing to pay, say, 20%, yeah. you know, but they're going to end up getting it, say, for whatever, say 10 is yeah. where you settle. And they're going to be, like, super happy. And the others are like, well, I thought it was going to be 5, but it's going to be at the 10 point. And we yeah. grandfather them in usually. Yeah. You know, there's no reason to piss off a customer based on your learning, right? That's a risk you take. So if you're going to do that, be cautious and careful with your customers. So we went, we're not going to raise the 5s to 10. They're just going to get it at 5 for the first 12 months or something. Yeah. That's one way. Uh, uh, if you want to get scientific about pricing, there are – survey ways that I prefer to do it to really figure out your price thresholds. If you do these kind of long form, you know, 30 minute surveys with some kind of reward at the end. And in those surveys, you show people like the feature, and then you show them three features. And then you show them, would you pay this? Or would you pay this? Or would you pay that? You can you can walk them down to the point at, at which they start to drop off in a survey. So you can say, would you pay one buck for this? Yeah. How about 10? Yeah. How about 20? You know, and you can, with one survey question after another in sequential order, figure out your drop-offs that way too. And where have you used that approach? Shutterstock four or five times here three months ago, Optimizely, when we were coming up with pricing for that. Yeah, most four out of the five companies I've worked at, I've used that at some point. And you built the survey with? Qualtrics is a good tool that's robust enough. There are lots of survey tools. You can get yeah, Survey yeah. Monkey to do it if you need. I forget that this is like pragmatic on the ground. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's just always interesting to figure out, okay, how do they, because I, I know and I've talked to people about like painted doors before they kind of get it. And then they're like, well, what do you do with this? And what do you do with that? And yeah. what does it mean after they click through? And what do you do with people at the 20, that we're going to pay 20%, but you're now going to actually sell it at 10, you know? And so it's just here, it's good for people to hear the story all the way to the end, so I, to speak. Yeah, that's awesome. Sometimes I don't even remember because I, we, we do it so much. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely understand. You know, pricing's really hard. That's why there's consultants that like only do pricing because it's such a, it's such a complex thing to understand. So like Simon Kucher is a consultant I've used a bunch. I got into pricing because of Shutterstock. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't say that in my first company I was like a pricing expert. I kind of fell backwards into pricing at Beatport. We didn't even know what we were doing. We didn't even know what price to sell an MP3 online for. So we started at 249 
250. That was the price of an MP3 online in 2002. Then iTunes came out and decided it was 99 cents. And then we were like, oh shit, I guess we're a little high. <laughs> it's all good. It's all about anchoring. It's all like, what do your users expect? Yeah, I mean, anchoring is extremely powerful. I, I remember early apps on the phones, right? And it was like, oh, you can get this. You know, Twitter, whatever it was, TweetDeck for free, but there's a much better version for five bucks. But so many people are anchored to free apps. Yeah. And I remember talking to people that were making like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and they're like, oh, you know, they were asking me about this app, and I was like, oh, I really like this one. And they're like, but it's five bucks. And I was like, are you serious? They're like, I'm just, everything's free. And they're like, and I'm like, yeah, but it's five bucks. <laughs> I mean, you just went to Starbucks and paid seven fifty for something. I mean, come on. Yeah. And, and it's just because they were anchored with this concept early on that free. you know, free. I know. Some of those app stores really screwed up that way. I feel like they you drove. It took a while out. before that you know you adjusted that anchor to. I think more people are much more willing to pay. You know, for apps on on a phone, even simple apps now. But in the beginning, it was like, it's not free. What do you mean it's not free? I know. We anchored everything to free, which is so weird. It felt like, oh, if it's from the internet, it should be cheap. That was sort of like the first 25 years of the internet. I think Patreon actually is it's, it's interesting because I think as a world, we're actually coming on the other side of that pendulum. People are now okay paying for content. People are like, you know, they're they're okay paying for their time. I think Facebook and has really helped us understand that our time is actually valuable. It has a dollar amount to it, our time and our data. Yeah, and they, they have a dollar amount for it. <laughs> yeah. They'll, they'll tell, I wish Facebook could tell me my CPM. That would be really helpful. <laughs> okay, good. Glad to know. So I can do the math over the last five years. Maybe I'd use Facebook more if they shared it with me. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you can pay me back my CPM. <laughs> I'll um, take a third. Yeah, pricing. I, I, I could go on for days. I always... In trying to figure out what the right price is for something, I usually find the heart of a product, the real value. Because sometimes your product is never one thing, right? It's there's A, it's got different features, it's got attributes, it's got perception. There's like you think it's these features, but the way a person uses it is like only for these other two things that you don't even talk about. That all gets lost in the marketing. But the second you put a price on these things, you find out pretty quick what the core value is of what you're doing. Most SaaS products have 50 features. And you go to their pages and they're like, here's the solutions. And each solution has 10 features. And, you know, it's just this mind-numbing list of product marketing. If you put a dollar price on each feature, you figure out pretty quick what actually has any value of what you're building. And usually people have bloated products with too many features and they haven't, like, figured out what the core value of that is. And I think pricing is a great way to force yourself to, like, understand the heart of your product. Yeah, I, I think it helps you put together different tiers of products too because you can take some of the you know, things that you know are valuable and throw them into the upper tier of the pricing. Mm-hmm. And you can also use it to understand what features your product doesn't need, like what to take away. Mm-hmm. If someone's unwilling to pay for something or everyone's unwilling to pay for something, then maybe you just don't need that one particular component at all, right? Yeah. Patreon's going through this right now. Patreon was... It started in 2012 as a like in the in the highlight of crowdfunding. You know, this is when Kickstarter was like blowing up the world, and Patreon was like referred to back in 2012 as a recurring Kickstarter. And now it's you know it's matured and grown into a membership platform. There are a lot of features and functionality at Patreon for all different types of creators. But you know it, and that's the right pivot for the business for a lot of reasons, which I could get into if you're interested. But I think along the way, it's like, oh, 
one of the big things Patreon, you know, is recognizing is like, oh, if you price like a crowdfunding product, people think you're a crowdfunding product. You know what I mean? Even though if you look under the hood of the what it is that we do, it's robust and rich and has all these like really amazing experiences that creators have with their patrons. And so that's that's one of those like growing moments that we're going through as a company. Hmm. Interesting. So if you're talking to a product manager out there who wants to learn more about pricing, what do you tell them to do? There's a good book, uh, Monetizing Innovation, by uh, some friends at Simon Kucher, which I would recommend reading. I would show them a number of companies who have had to do radical price changes that were both failures and successes. I think Etsy's really interesting recently. Etsy, after many years, decided to finally change some of their pricing. And it was like an uproar for a minute, and then it was fine. You know, you, you had a shift and you had some people upset, and then the stock took off and the revenue of the company changed uh, quite a bit. And now they're feeling very confident and excited about the decision. But there's there's ones on both sides. You've seen prices where people roll it out and actually have to back off it. You've seen Netflix is famous. Yeah, they've had some good pricing decisions that were very <laughs> beneficial, and they've had one in particular. That <laughs> one was, in particular that was, that was a tough. pretty big flop. Yeah. So I would study pricing decisions that went really well and ones that went really poorly. It's funny because the word pricing is almost like it's like not the right word. What you're really doing is you're doing product strategy. You're deciding what's the core value of your product. And then you're putting a, so like the art of putting the sticker price on on it is actually the last step. All of the work you do up to that is work you would do anyway as a product person to decide what the core value is of your of your offering. Sometimes you literally like build all this software and you get down to it and you're like, oh, it's the customer service team. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're yeah, like, Shit, no, absolutely. I, I didn't realize, we've been I building mean, all this product for the last two years. People always think of product as the code, but it's really that whole experience around there. And sometimes the other aspects, like you mentioned customer service, could be more valuable than the pieces of code. And yeah, it happens all the time, actually. <laughs> it happens more than we like to admit it. Because everybody wants to think that theirs, theirs is the next super scalable, you know, uber-sized unicorn, when actually it could just be this one thing that is anchoring a bunch of customers to your, to your offering. And I think that's, if someone were asking me about pricing, I would actually say, well, Let's talk about systems and processes for discovering what's the core value that you offer. How do you like chip away at what's the fluff and what's the thing that like drives people to come back and use it over and over again over long periods of time? Then we can talk about what sticker to put on the top of it. Which, and there are tools and tests and A-B testing and painted doors that we can use to figure out the sticker that we paste on it at the end. Yes, but, but pricing next, really starts at what value are you creating or yeah. where is the value to your customers? Where is the value to your customers? And, and how do you get past what they say into like their actions? And, yeah, and really understanding the pieces of your product that provide that value, right? Yeah, that's right. Hmm. Awesome. So let's talk more about uh, PMs product managers, what qualities do you think PMs should have? Like, what, what should every product manager have? What's at the core of them? So I have my big three, and then there's a lot of variability after that. So I can rattle off my big three anytime, but I'm going to bring up some of the details, too. And I have a hiring note that I keep. <laughs> my big three while I'm looking this up, uh, number one is, can a PM articulate the future in a way that's compelling or interesting? You have to, because you're selling something that's not yet built. 
you do it all day. So I'm going to test a PM immediately when I meet them if they can convince me of a future of some kind. Like, what, what, what are we doing? Why are we all here? Like, tell me what, what's going to be better. Tell me how you're going to make things more interesting. Tell a story. Tell a story about the future. That is so important. And if you can't do that, don't PM. <laughs> That's a kind of a core foundational piece. Second thing every PM needs to have is the grit and determination to continue working on a thing even after everyone tells you no, even after the first iteration doesn't work. Because that's when the magic happens. Every product I've ever built was not my first idea. It was my eighth. You know, the first idea sucked. It was the like, oh, what sucked about it? Oh, it was this. That, oh, okay, cool. And then I iterate a little bit further. Oh, it's still not right. Oh, and I iterate a little bit further. It's always the like a few tries that I start to find something that's valuable. I know there's probably like people in the world, maybe Steve Jobs or something that like did it on one try. I don't know. A, that's what the stories say. I mean, Apple had its ups and downs. So I, totally. There's Steve Jobs, the reality, and Steve Jobs, the myth. So totally, and I think there's myth. The myth is probably bigger than the reality. In my world, I've never had a great idea out of the gate. It, it always was like the third or fourth iteration. So that means what do we want to see in PMs? We want to see the grit and determination to stay with an idea and iterate on it, even when other people start to give up. Because if you give up easy, you're you're gonna you're gonna struggle to be a PM. And also, you know, PMs are CEOs in training, right? I mean, what's a CEO? It's a person who has an idea and they got to convince investors to invest in it or they got to convince – or if they're not going to go get money, they got to convince some people to work for them for cheap or free. At the end of the day, they have to have that grit and determination to believe in their idea so much that they're going to convince others to join and, and to do this with them. So thing one, articulate the future. Thing two, grit and determination to push through the no's and the failures. And then thing three – that I would expect from every PM uh, is the ability to inspire a team of engineers and designers and marketers and, uh, you know, to, to build this. And that means that you have to be able to communicate in a way that lands with technologists, with designers, with marketers. You have to be able to communicate broadly like that. This is also why there's that myth that, like, PMs should be technical. PMs can be technical. Uh, I have a lot of technical PMs, but certainly I have a lot of people from technology who are not good PMs because they're not able to, like, communicate broadly over to marketing and to sales and, like, other other parts of the organization. As a PM, you have to convince – you have to communicate in a way that inspires everybody. Plus, you want to get the most out of your engineers and designers. And the best ideas, actually, I found at least, usually come from my engineers and my designers who are, like, thinking about the problem every day and are this close to it. Engineers because they know what's only recently possible from a technology perspective. And designers because they're thinking so deeply about the user and the different experiences the user is having. That if I, as a PM, can frame things well, I get the best out of the team. I get the team to come together and do something they weren't sure they could do before. So those are my big three. What are the little ones? Well, that's where it gets more... So I've been meaning to write this post someday, but I think there's – and someone probably wrote it already somewhere because of Medium. I remember starting Beatport in 2002. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know anything. We didn't even know how to raise money. We were in Denver. We weren't in Silicon Valley. So we borrowed money from an NFL football player who played on the Broncos. (laughs) (laughs) That was how we got that company off the ground. I laugh because now if you want to learn how to be a product manager, there's 8,400,000 
620 articles on Medium about every single aspect and detail of product management. Not all good. Yeah, I, I found that the big thing now is curation. Like when, <laughs> when people like get advice on something, I was like, there's good advice and there's bad advice. And one of the difficulties you're going to have is determining what is what. Yeah. Oh, isn't it true? It's so true. I, I can't even, I don't even know what to do with Medium anymore. There's like, I subscribe to like product topics and every day there's a new article and sometimes the headline gets me and then I get into the article and I'm like, oh, no, 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 you haven't <laughs> done this before. <laughs> You're just talking out your ass. So I, I can only imagine being uh, like a more junior PM or something and having to wade through that. It's a different problem. than the one I had in 2002, which was, no one, I have literally no one to go to to ask any of these questions. I'm just going to make it up. Boy, I kind of went off on a tangent. I apologize. No, that's good. Oh, it, was about, it was about the we details. We're talking the little detail or the, the little qualities PM should have. Well, so I, I, there's a world, I would like to write a post. So I, maybe we'll never do it, but on product personas. I think there are different types of PMs who have strengths. And I think as PMs get really senior, my expectation is that they've been three or four personas. So let's walk through a couple personas. One persona is like an enterprise PM. If you're a PM at an enterprise company, you deeply understand the organization of who you sell into. Not just their product needs, but actually the communication chain because different people are going to use it than are who are going to pay for it. And you, as a PM, you have to understand both worlds. You may actually build a product that does one thing for the person using it and does another thing for the person who gets the report about the th people using it. So... Enterprise PMs understand the dynamics of larger organizations. They understand the dynamics of longer sales cycles. They understand the dynamics of how features can help close sales deals. That's like a whole – that's a totally different animal, the, the enterprise sales cycle and the enterprise yeah. – The apples in the window versus the ones you actually buy in the store. Yeah. Know, the, the shiny, waxy ones <laughs> in the window. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So that's a persona. And, yeah, good PM who's got 10 or 15 years' experience, I would love to see that at some point in their career, maybe they spent three to four years doing that type of product management because it's hard and it's different and it's nuanced. There's optimization, which we just went through. There's, there's the art of the product has product market fit, and what you're doing is you're optimizing it. You're, you're continually tweaking and moving it to make metrics move. A lot of PMs go into mature organizations, and they own – a specific feature or set of features, and they've learned how to optimize that to grow and hit numbers. That's a specific art that you only get at a certain size company and with certain maturity of product. So let's call it the optimization PM. There's the white spacers. These are the people who you really want on zero to one, where you don't have anything and you're just making it all up. People who are really comfortable in ambiguity, people who start companies because they're fine. They feel really comfortable like, yeah, I don't know what we're going to do. I'm going to figure it out along the way. And we all know these are the storied PMs, right? These are the, the CEOs and the folks who start companies. But that's a type of PM. And a lot of times the white spacers are actually terrible at the optimization. And maybe the white spacers should never do enterprise product management because they'll just be frustrated and pissed off at all the bureaucracy. There's a few other kinds. You know, in SaaS companies, I, I, there's the solutions PM versus the uh, technical PM. Yeah. It, it, the way I had it at Optimizely, for example, was the so solutions PM is customer-facing. It may actually be the PM for multiple teams. And the technical PM is like day-to-day -day in the weeds with the engineering team, like working on the in-depth functionality. 
So that's like a split that I've seen before. It's not quite a persona, but there are very different skill sets needed for those things. So now at a larger company, do you have a mix of them? I mean, if you're at a beginning startup, you probably just need the zero to oneers, I think, as you described them. That's right. But at a larger company, you need a mix, right? You need a blend. And you hire that way. Well, you know what I usually end up doing? So four times now I've come into a company and been the new head of product that had a team. Shutterstock only had a two-person team, so that wasn't too big a deal. But Optimizely had like... 12 p.m.s and Patreon here had 7 p.m.s and and a lot of times I come in and you know the the usually I'm brought in to solve a problem and I'm looking at what's the product doing what's the revenue what's the market and then what's the team usually the team is not the right team for that size and stage of product so a lot of times I come into a series C and I've got series A p.m.s and so you've got to pepper in and add those folks who are good at optimization and good at cross-functional influence within the organization. And they have this other set of skills that the zero to oneers never even like considered having. So yeah, it's about there's another vector which is size and stage of company, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting. So when you ask me what makes a good PM, I could write a job description for each of these personas, and they would be really different job descriptions: the enterprise PM, the white spacer, the optimizer, so on and so forth. Get it. Makes sense? Yeah. So let's, let's talk about qualities that are non-starters for PMs. Like, what do you see and say, like, that's not going to work? Yeah, I mean, is it PMs or is it just humans in general? I don't know. But dogmatism seems to be a failure, like an auto, auto-eject. auto If you get really, like, you have to seek learning, I think, to be a PM. You have to have that beginner's mind because you're going to be wrong a lot. And the more you come to terms with the fact that you're wrong more than you're right, the better off you're going to be. You got to let that wrongness wash over you and like accept it and kind of pivot and move. So when I see dogma, I, I, my ear, my spidey sense goes up. That's a non-starter. And dogmatic about a lot of things. It's one thing to have conviction about an idea. It's another thing to be like, the only way we can do this is if we use strict agile development processes with story points and blah, 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 blah. Like, who fucking cares? Like, I've seen products get built a hundred ways. I've seen products, really great products get built with the shittiest development process ever. And I've seen really terrible products get built with the most finely tuned development processes ever. So, you know, when I see that dogmatism around how things get built instead of the outcome that you're trying to see in the world, that's a red flag for me. Uh, another one is you've got to be good at influence. If you can't, you know, the, the old joke about PMs, all the responsibility but none of the authority. That's what that means is influence. So Yeah, absolutely. If you can't convince people of your idea uh, without, like, being their boss, then you, you're probably done. Yeah, because you're held accountable, but you don't necessarily have yeah. the power to make people do what you think they should. Yeah, so that's that's the show, that's a showstopper, is, is not being influential. So dogmatism, um, not being influential. What else are anti-goals for PMs? You really, I, I believe this deeply, you have to, well, again, it's about size and stage of company, it's about the type of PM. So at a startup, you have to move fast. You can't get, like, stuck in analysis paralysis. You don't have time. You have a limited amount of cash. The constraints are such that you need to be able to make decisions quickly. High velocity and high quality. And it also means you shouldn't just make every decision at high velocity. You should understand what are the ones that I need to pause and think through. This is pivotal. It's one of the core value props of the product. We've now touched on the heart of it. 
So slow down for this one or two decisions. And then the next five, doesn't matter. Make a call, move on. But as a, if you're a zero to one or if you're in an early stage kind of series A, B company, your decision-making velocity needs to be very, very high. Almost the opposite goes for like a really big mature company because you're dealing with such a complex system that some, if your decision-making is too erratic and too fast, you can have chain reactions that you won't see for months. I'll give you a, an example. Um, at Shutterstock, I had some PMs doing some conversion work uh, on the front end, and they found a couple tests that worked really well to increase conversion, price tests. Um, some price, some copy, but like they, were, they found this lever that, that, that increased conversion almost double digit. It was like 8 or 9%, which on a $300 million business is a pretty considerable chunk of change. The challenge was they saw the number and they got really excited and they, didn't, they weren't really thinking deeply enough about the core value of the product and what, what it was they were selling. And they were overselling. They were overselling users on that pricing page. And so the churn rate was bad on a three-month perspective. But you can't know that until three months later. So by the time we figured it out, it was what looked like a multi-million dollar win was tens of millions of dollars of losses in three-month retention. So, like, you, you can't just look at the numbers and make quick decisions in complex systems. You have to understand the ramifications there. And it depends on the level of complexity in your system. Shutterstock, I, I managed at scale when it was an 800-person company. So more of my stories are going to come from about the need for slower decisions are going to come from a Shutterstock. Another example I'll give, the way the search engine works at Shutterstock, um, because you're balancing supply and demand, is... There's ways I can tweak the algorithms to increase conversion. For example, let's say you're doing a search for some dog photos. I know what dog photos are the most popular dog photos. So I can make the algorithm show you the best dog photos in our whole library. However, it has an adverse effect on the supply side of the marketplace because if I'm a photographer and I took a bunch of new dog photos, well, those new dog photos get put in the system, but we're ranking old dog photos that have the most views and the most downloads because they're proven. And so these photographers are uploading content and it's not getting any downloads. And so they're like, well, fuck it. I'm going to stop uploading content. So there's things you can do in the search engine that like increase revenue on the short term and decrease your supply. Which will which, hurt revenue which in the long term. revenue in the long term. So if you don't think deeply about those decisions, you'll fuck them up. And so I think it's all about like it's this balance for the size and stage of company of quality decisions and speed. Interesting. So you've learned a lot, right, from your experiences. If you're talking to product leaders out there, what, what's something that's not obvious that you've learned that maybe others don't know? So if I were talking to other heads of product or product managers at other companies, you know, one of the things that I think is so important as a PM to understand is that the laws of financial gravity exist. We kind of touched on this a little bit with pricing, but maybe I'll take a different tact. So many companies today are, are VC-backed, but that is just a credit card. There comes a time when that money is due. And so a lot of PMs I meet operate as though that, does, that the laws of financial gravity don't exist. They never have to think about being profitable. They never have to think about running a, a business that's profitably growing. They kind of think, oh, no, the strategy is I do all the stuff and I get all the users and like this. Or, or actually, it's okay that we're unprofitable because we're, we're buying growth. Like, 
Not really. <laughs> Actually, it, it, it just went. Like you can buy yourself time, but if you're not operating under those constraints, it's, you know what I mean? Like it, yeah, every absolutely. day, absolutely. Then, then you're actually kidding yourself because even the VCs, like if you're going to borrow a bunch of money, they're, they're going to, they either want hyper growth or they want to see profitable growth. One of the two. Usually hyper growth is even better because they're hoping for that like top 0.1%. But profitable growth is good too. And we'll, we'll keep you in, in good but that, I, a lot of PMs I meet just don't operate under those constraints. I, and it, but they, then the time comes and they, they happen. Like it will happen to you at some point. So that's not obvious, I think, to product managers. I think a lot of PMs live in a world outside of those constraints. So let's talk about trends in the future. What trends do you see coming up for product managers? Well, I would say we've gone through this like era of PMs are everything kind of we're sort of maybe almost at the peak i think we're at like peak pm like because we've had some of the monster products in the last 15 to 20 years kind of explode the way they have and the mythos around those and the steve jobs and you know the the unicorns product managers went from relative like (laughs) non-existence in the 90s to essentially one of the most important roles you could hire at a company today so I think we sort of hit the peak. And I think a lot of companies are realizing, wow, not every business is going to be a $50 billion business on an 800% year-on-year growth rate. It might be a 50% growth rate business, which is awesome, by the way. <laughs> and so I think that kind of mythos is going to kind of, the pendulum will swing the other way, where people kind of come back to like a more centered version of how companies are run between go-to-market and product and engineering. The other thing is, of course, engineers, and to some extent products, product managers are the scarcest resource. That actually isn't going to change. So from a trend perspective, I'm lucky to have worked at Hired, so I got to actually analyze on a multi-year view the supply and demand and equities, both in product management and in uh, engineering. That won't change. There's still going to be a supply, demand, and equity for many years to come. But I do think organizationally things are shifting a bit. I feel like, you know, it's still a super important role and one that's something that companies value a lot, but there's lots of ways to get things done. And I think companies are being more scrappy about that and thinking more holistically about their business than they were a couple of years ago. If I, even just 2015, it's a little out of control. I felt like PMs were as scarce as like a security engineer. When I was at Hired, I actually knew like statistically which types of people were the most, where the biggest supply demand inequities were. In Silicon Valley, it's security engineers and DevOps engineers. Or literally, there's just on a pure like jobs posted versus humans, uh, the biggest inequities. But product managers are up there. Hmm. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about Wyatt since we're uh, wrapping towards the end here. Favorite product and why? I think I use Strava the most because I'm a cyclist. And they've really just nailed it. They just keep adding features for cyclists that every time they add them, I'm like, thank you, thank you, thank you. Like it just iteratively gets better for me. Um, It really, it's right at the value of why I ride a bike. I ride a bike to escape, but also to push myself and to test what I'm capable of. And it, it knows, like Strava knows exactly what I care about, which is the speed and the velocity and the, my heart rate and the climb and like, you know, all those things. And I can set goals against different 
parts of my rides, whether I'm doing an interval ride or whether I'm doing a long distance ride or whether I'm falling down a mountain bike trail on down a hill, whatever type I, I want, I can kind of, you know, it, Strava, Strava has that capability. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of Strava. I love it. I don't know how the hell they're going to monetize that thing. I mean, that last, last pricing. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> you can offer them suggestions. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I'd love to come over and talk. Uh, but just as a user, boy, I, would, I mean, it's very valuable to me. They could charge me a lot. I just don't know how many me's there are. <laughs> I don't know how many. That might be a small market of, like, intensely competitive cyclists. Maybe that works. Yeah. You know? If they want to focus on them, they can charge an awful lot. So final question for you today. Three words to describe yourself. Passionate, pragmatic, honest. Thanks. This has been great. Greatly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people. <laughs>